Well, hey, everybody, thanks for joining us. Welcome to Grace Online. I am so glad to be able to share with you this next stop along the way. We've been journeying through this throughout the summer. I want to highly encourage you going back and checking these out. It's been fascinating to see the disciples' reaction to who Jesus was. And while you're sitting there on your couch and you're hanging out, I want to just dive right away. I want to dive right into the message today and start interacting with how Jesus now interacts with some Pharisees, interacts with disciples, and kind of starts to mess with some traditions. He starts to mess with some commandments and he gets into this word that is kind of a a big word that we certainly don't use very often nowadays, but it's this defilement, right? And that is a weird word. I think Jesus explains it pretty well is what we're talking about here. But I'm, I'm, I'm pretty encouraged. I'm pretty excited to see how we can kind of respond to this idea of what Jesus actually wants and has for us. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Mark 7. As you're sitting there on your couch at your dining room table, wherever you happen to be, open that sucker up. Get ready to do some highlights and some underlinings. Maybe make some question marks if you have those questions. And of course, you can always be interacting with our host team right here. So make some comments, ask some questions, and we can dialogue a little bit back and forth uh, as we go about the message. But Mark 7, let's go ahead and dive right into this. So stops along the way. Mark 7, the Pharisees. And some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And I'll make this caveat here. Uh, Jesus isn't going to recommend that we don't wash our hands before we eat. But there's something more at play here. See, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, uh, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? This, to me, is a little bit fascinating because what we see here is actually how the Pharisees, um, we get a little bit of inner working on how their minds work. The Pharisees saw themselves as being perfect, right? They understood all that was uh, encompassed in the law. They understood the things that they were trying to do. Uh, they, the, the passage points out that they made sure that they had all their ducks in a row, that their kettles and cups and bowls and and dishes and all that was washed. They had these summarial cleansings that they did all before they would sit down to eat. They had it completely uh, all figured out. And that's that's something that I think is kind of, I don't want to say hysterical, but it certainly resonates this idea of we know what we're doing, we're perfect, and we understand how everything should go. I can't help but kind of think about that mindset and start hearing almost this, this arrogance come through their voice. I can kind of imagine them sitting here talking now like, um, I don't eat dirt. I couldn't possibly eat dirt. Who would eat dirt? Why wouldn't you wash your hands before you eat dirt? Can you imagine? Who in the right mind would do that? Cedric, because somebody's name is Cedric. Uh, Cedric, what? I haven't eaten dirt in decades. Can you imagine eating dirt like these heathen do? And I, 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 it's, it's amazing to me. We start to hear this like, 
why on earth wouldn't you do this? Now, I don't know. I, I apologize right now. I don't know why that arrogance in my mind comes with an English accent. And if you have an English accent, not only do I apologize for that, I apologize for how bad that accent actually is from my behalf. But we hear statements like this from time to time, kind of on a regular basis. It could be someone just simply saying, I would never shop at a place like Walmart. I don't eat meat. I don't, I don't hang out with those people. I, I wouldn't eat at McDonald's. Matter of fact, uh, that's the one time I got caught by a friend in a McDonald's lobby and I was sitting there, I was ordering my food and I stopped for a second. I'm like, oh, I'm just here, uh, just here hiring a hitman. I'm not actually eating McDonald's food <laughs> as if that was somehow better. Um, but we have these arrogances, right, in our life. And we have these moments where we're like, this is something that I could never see myself doing. Why on earth would someone else do this? And this arrogant voice, this arrogant tone kind of comes from us. Now, we don't always mean it to sound that way, right? I don't know for sure that the Pharisees were trying to have this arrogant demeanor, but what was happening is because of how studied they were, as to how uh, correct they were in their minds, the ways that they had all this stuff backing them up, they now had this perception, this, this, um, this air about them that said, I stand for what is correct. Why don't you? And the problem with this is it doesn't just stop with that introspective thought. It starts to come out to other people. And so we see them then approach Jesus, and he then says, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? They take this mindset that they have, that they've landed on, these things that they have now agreed with, and they start pushing it on others around them. This, this is a big deal, right? Because we start to ask these questions about like, why don't we, people do what I've determined is right to do? right? And maybe it is things like McDonald's or Walmart or whatever that might be for you. But in today's summer mentality, it could even be things like, why on earth would they prioritize wearing masks at all moments? Or why on earth would they elevate all of this as if it, it's something bigger than it actually is? And we, we start landing on all of these opinions and research and facts that we've come across and I'm not picking on those, but then we start pushing that mentality on other people in a way that doesn't help anything, right? And so it could even be like, how, how dare they keep a silent stance on social media during something that should be so obvious for us to post about? Or why can't they see that their political opinion is complete, a complete farce? Why can't they see that the, the, the missing elements, the missing plot holes, and the things that they see, that they buy into, that they want to be be a part of, right? And so we, there's, there's times in our culture where we can see that type of questioning, where we can see people that have landed and where they believe, and then they start pushing it onto others. And I think this is a huge deal because the Pharisee, what the Pharisees were asking, this is where we can probably feel a little bit less defensive at the moment if you feel that way. And that's actually not even what I'm trying to do right now. But we can start to realize that what the Pharisees are asking isn't even that bad, right? They're just, they're asking, why haven't you done these traditional laws? Why aren't you washing your hands before you sit down and eat? That's not even that bad of a recommendation. What happens is, is it's how they're going about and what they're focusing on.
because of the disciples' uh, history, their, their background, their cultural expectations, and then even based on our own personal experiences, we can kind of see this. We can see how when someone has this, this other point of view, but then it's approached the way that the Pharisees approached it, that when we have that disagreement with someone, it can actually puncture our ability to have a fruitful relationship. And so instead of helping people understand things, instead of having some type of helpful mindset, what happens on the reverse side of that type of questioning is we land in some type of shame. We land in some type of experience where people like the disciples start to feel like they just simply don't belong hanging out with people like the Pharisees. They feel neglected. They feel like they're outcast. They feel like they shouldn't be a part of what is doing here. They feel, frankly, they feel unwanted simply because they haven't been able to keep up with what the Pharisees are recommending. Now, I think that this is important because usually when we start to feel those types of emotions, usually when we start to feel like you don't belong, usually when you feel like you're unwanted, you start to land in one of three different possibilities. The first is that we start to try and try and try and try with everything that we've got just always to come up short. We never actually hit the standard that's being set before us and we don't know what else to do, but we keep just trying and trying and trying and trying. The second thing that we often will fall into is this, this idea where we start to kind of pull ourselves away a little bit and we start to just try to make sure that we're kind of appeasing the situation. We do just enough not to be fully ostracized and then we kind of just hope for the best that the big guy upstairs thinks it's enough. I've actually heard this mentality from people before. They, they, they talk about Jesus, they talk about the scriptures, they talk about this, and they said, you know what? I've done enough. I'm just gonna hope for the best when I get to the end of my life. They, they think that they've just scratched the surface enough and they start to pull away from the heartbeat of the entire conversation. And of course, the third reaction might be the worst. It's the one where you just straight up give up. It's the one where you're saying, if I can't possibly meet your standards, if I can't do all of these things, then I'm done. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to research it anymore. I don't want to try anymore. I don't want my life to be even remotely defined by that anymore. I'm done. Let me out. And all of this happens because they're surrounded by this idea when we see the disciples being around, the Pharisees gloating about their perfection, about their consistency, about how smart they are, about how they've studied, about how they knew what they knew, and they were going to be okay trying to make sure that you knew it too. You see, oftentimes that mentality doesn't actually help win people to the cause, but instead it actually causes them to be ashamed. And so when we have a mindset like the Pharisees, the Pharisees' arrogance made the disciples sources of shame. When they have this idea that they're going to continue to push and push and push and push, instead of it somehow turning into something productive, it actually causes them to withdraw ashamed of who they are as a person, ashamed of their ability to engage life, ashamed to even be associated with the Pharisees. And Jesus, of course, is not super excited about that. Jesus doesn't want that to be where it lands. So Jesus brings up a familiar Hebrew text, and he actually walks them through this response. And he says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it's written, 
These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have to let go of the commands of God. Or excuse me, you have let go. That's a big difference. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. This is huge. Because Jesus is starting to say, listen, it's not about the argument that you're even making. There's something different here. There's something about the fact that your hearts are far from me, even though you're trying to do all the things that you think are right. And that's a huge difference. And I can see the disciples here starting to wake up to the conversation, starting to get excited about the fact that Jesus just kind of defended them. Jesus just kind of got in their corner. Jesus just said that, hey, what you're focusing on doesn't matter. Yeah, your hearts are from God. Yeah, you tell those Pharisees. Yeah, 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 that's my boy. I want, I'm, I'm going to be a part of this. Jesus is over here in my corner. Like, let's go. Like, they're getting pretty excited about what's going on. And they start to feel not, not only comfortable, but like, whew, that was close. I thought the Pharisees had a point and we didn't wash our hands, but then here's Jesus. Like Jesus knows what's up. Jesus knows. Jesus knows the real issue. It's the heart issue. Yeah, Pharisees, you sit back down. And I'll be honest, I wish the passage ended here. I wish that it was done because it feels so good. It feels so righteously vindictive. It feels like that the Pharisees are getting what they deserved. It feels like Jesus made this great point about what you say versus what the condition of your heart. And it feels like we're finally landing someone somewhere. And yet Jesus continues. The portrait that he's trying to paint isn't complete. The picture's not whole. And it's like he says to the disciples, okay, let me pull you aside. Let me actually break this down a bit and let me show you what's up. I don't want you to miss this. And I can picture the disciples almost asking like, what are you doing? You had this so perfectly wrapped up. You just proved your point. The Pharisees are backing down. You showed them what's going on. And Jesus lovingly has to say, no, no, no. Let me show you what's actually going on. This is actually... Uh, maybe my favorite verse in this particular passage that we're looking at today in Mark 7, but uh, probably not for the right reasons. It says, uh, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. So they're in there and they're saying, Jesus, this thing that you're talking about, the lips are far from me, but the heart and all this kind of stuff. And you showed the Pharisees, like, that's what you meant, right? Like, we're, we're in this, right? And Jesus' initial response is, are you so dull, he asks. I love this. I looked this up in a couple of other versions of the Bible, and in the message, which is a really good version of the Bible as a reading Bible, it's great to just kind of read through and catch the essence of the, how these things fit together. It's, it's good. But the way that it's talked about in that version, the question that Jesus asks is, are you being willfully stupid? Like, this, <laughs> this is not just a, simply a question of like, oh, I'm sorry, you're not getting it. Like, Jesus is kind of like, are you, are you trying to not understand what I'm, I'm saying here? And I love that. And so the disciples' attitude of like, yeah, you show them, was missing the point. Jesus wasn't trying to correct the Pharisees' encouragement of washing their hands. He's pointing out that there's something more important at play. The disciples were missing that. They were missing that there's something other. It's not just about winning the argument. Jesus is trying to point out something deeper, better, more life-giving, something that's even a deeper problem, and yet that he provides the solution to. 
You see, there are many of us that get stuck in moments like this. Maybe for the very first time, we start to believe, and we should, that God loves us. And that's so true. God does love you. And we start to see that, and we start to like feel it, and we start to really believe it in our depth, in our core, and then we kind of get stuck. Or we hear something like, Jesus is on your side. Jesus is for you. Jesus wants you to be with him. And that's also true. Jesus gave up his life on the cross so that you could have access to the God. Jesus rose again to give you life, to bring you into right relationship with God. Being on Jesus' side is correct. He wants you to be there. But sometimes if we get kind of stuck in these two minds of, man, God loves me, man, Jesus is for me, and we get stuck to the point of paralyzation, as if that's in and of itself the whole goal. And we kind of sit there like the disciples, like, yeah, you show them. Yeah, you didn't know that God was for me. Yeah, you didn't know that Jesus, Jesus was actually for me, and he wants me to be in the family. He wants me to be a part of this. And we kind of get, again, paralyzed. And so Jesus wants us to get beyond the beginning of that understanding and actually help us see what then leads to life. And what Jesus is about to say is that it's not about the hands. It's not about the hands at all. You see, the disciples' short-sightedness gave them a false security. They were so locked in to the fact that Jesus just won the argument against the Pharisees that they were missing the bigger picture. They were short-sighted. It doesn't just rest here. And then Jesus is gracious to show us the depth of the actual problem. Jesus says, don't you see that nothing enters a person from the outside that can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. Now, he went on. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Whew, that's a big list. And that's a lot of things that Jesus is actually bringing to the table. And what Jesus is trying to say is that is actually what makes us dirty. That's what actually defiles us. That it wasn't about whether or not you washed your hands before dinner. It's about the fruit of your life. It's about what's coming out of our hearts. It's about what's coming out of our mouths. That's what actually defiles us. The Pharisees were trying to make sure that our hands are clean. But Jesus was slowing us down graciously enough to make sure that our hearts are actually clean. Now, for a moment, as I was reading this passage, I was studying this, I started asking myself, what's so different about what Jesus addressed and what the Pharisees were addressing? Why are some of these bad things missing the point? And then why are these other things right on target? Jesus is trying to help us understand the heart of God, and he's drawing a distinction. And what I want to do to kind of help you see this a little bit is I want to walk through my life. I want to walk through a little bit of Joe Caruso's shoes 
so that you can understand how easy it is to start to see yourself in this list. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm literally going to walk through these, and I want, I want you to see how my life shows up in this crazy list. When we think of sexual immorality, this, I looked at the definition of this because in some ways I think we can often miss what this actually means. And it says that we're neglecting or defying God's law of sexual relations. Now, I'm not going to get into the details, but in my life, my heart isn't completely clean when it comes to the premarital side of my sexual life. That's certainly there. That's a part of, of my past. Sexual immorality is and has been a part of my heart, and Jesus is pointing that out. Theft. I've stolen time. I've avoided being with my family for selfish reasons. I've avoided being with my friends. I've, I've taken what doesn't belong to me. I've avoided responsibility. I've sat longer here just to get out of something. I've walked away from this. I've, I've fudged in... I've stolen time and resources from others. Now, not maybe frequently, but I've certainly done it. Murder. You ready for this? Big admission time. Just kidding. I haven't killed anybody. But what Jesus does say is if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder on the inside. You've emotionally already stepped across that line. And I have hated people. I've hated people that I know personally. I've hated people that are kind of out there and aren't people that I even know. But that hate has shown up. The next one, adultery. These voluntary sexual relations with a person that's not your spouse, a surrendering of sexual purity, a type of sexual expression outside the boundaries of a New Testament defined marriage. That's, that's what adultery is. We step outside those bounds of an honorable New Testament marriage. And yeah, I've been there. I've looked too long. I've let my eyes wander without bouncing them back. I, I've clicked on the thing on purpose. I've, I've gone down the wrong path. I've allowed myself to daydream. And then even sometimes when I've caught myself daydreaming, I allow myself to continue to daydream. Adultery is in my heart. Greed. I've totally done it for the money. I've thought about what it would be like if I wasn't in ministry. If I could, and, and the church takes care of us, don't get, us, don't get me wrong, but I could probably make more money outside of a ministry lifestyle. And I've thought about that. I've dreamt about that. I've made decisions about how I wish that I could do these things if I had the money. I've been less generous because I want to do something selfish with my money. I've made decisions that even though I had the option of helping someone or just building the comfortability of my lifestyle, I've made that decision to be more comfortable, to have a little bit more of a taste of luxury, to do what I want. Greed has been a part of my life. Malice, the intention to do desire or ill will, being malicious. <laughs> I've wished that someone would just die. I've wanted their life to crumble apart. I've, I've hoped for pain in other people's life. I've been malicious. Deceit. I've definitely been deceitful. You know, not that any of us have ever done anything quite like that before, but we've been deceitful, right? 
We do things on purpose to kind of hide the truth, to smudge the truth, to err here, to change the numbers. One of my favorite stories with this actually is uh, my wife is an excellent cook. Like she's an excellent cook. And I love it. One time we were actually with our life group and we were hanging out together and uh, my wife had made dinner for the whole group and I loved it. And one of our dear friends came up to us and she says, Joe, Joe, this cooking is so good. It is a miracle with the way that Mandy cooks that you're not 300 pounds. And I just looked at her kind of like this. I was so awkward because she's like, it's a miracle you don't weigh 300 pounds. She didn't know that that morning I weighed at 301.7. Like, she had no idea that that's where I actually was. And yet, I didn't want to admit that. I didn't want to tell someone who saw that as being way up here. And I'm like, well, I can't possibly. And so you fall back into that, right? This is like a little bit of a moment of admission, right? Uh, but we, we have this idea and understanding of what certain things are. And then when people put that perception with you, you're like, well, I can't. I'm not that way. And I've made these deceitful decisions so that people don't understand where I'm actually coming from. Lewdness was the next thing in Jesus's list. It's this idea of inciting, right, lust or uh, inciting things that are indecent or obscene. And I've recommended the songs to people that fall into that category. I have my own list of, of uh, guilty pleasure music, right? I've, I've recommended, go ahead and watch this. It's got some language and this, that, and the other, but go ahead and watch it because you can get past it. I, it. That's lewdness, where we're inclined to or inciting that type of behavior. That's in me. Envy is the next one. And if you don't think that I've ever wished that I could get the new house, if you don't ever think that I wished I didn't have to drive the 11-year-old car, if you ever thought that, man, I wish I could get shoes like that, man, I wish I could have clothes like that, man, I wish I could update my kitchen like that, if you don't think that envy is not in me, then you don't know me because envy is certainly there. Slander was the next one on Jesus' list. (laughs) I'm always super tempted to try to make other people look not as smart as I am. And maybe that's beneficial that that sentence was so weird to kind of prove my own point. But I like, I, I like to be the smartest person in the room, and I'm often not. But I like to look for those opportunities. Arrogance, <laughs> it shows up in a lot of these things we've already talked about, but there's a joke in my family that my personal hashtag is hashtag Caruso has an opinion. I know what I think, and I think I'm right. Arrogance is definitely there. And then folly, foolishness. (laughs) I'm a moron for thinking I should be that arrogant. Look, if we're honest, maybe we can see ourselves in this list. Maybe we can see ourselves in the whole list. And maybe not the whole thing, but, but maybe. Maybe if you went down the list like I did and made even some more personal annotations about how you've committed those sins, about how you've seen yourself in those positions, you'd realize that it's easy for all of us to understand that our hearts are defiled. The disciples would have seen themselves there too. You have these fishermen, you have tax collectors, you have these builders that as Jesus is walking through this list, similarly to how I did, they'd start seeing their life playing out with each of these characteristics. 
They'd be remembering times that they treated someone this way or the, the times that in, in, the, in the dark, in, the, in their quiet moments, their personal moments, they allowed themselves to go down pathways that weren't honorable. And what Jesus is trying to bring up is not simply how dirty our hands are. Jesus is trying to show us how defiled our hearts are. And this is so important. This, this defilement, this dishonor, this dishonorableness, this is why I shouldn't be arrogant. I can't even say right words, right? But this idea that honor is missing from who we are, this is sin. And this is what Jesus is trying to point out. It's a big deal. Stop worrying about your hands. Your heart is defiled and falling apart. And this sin is so important because it does three things. The first thing it does is your sins, that defilement, it breaks the connection with God. All that list, they, it tears us apart. It separates us from the goodness of God. And our imperfections keep us from connecting with who God actually is. The second thing that sin does is it actually destroys the bridges with people. You'll notice that each one of those have heavy relational components to them. The way that we treat others, the way that we honor those that we care the most about, the way that we take advantage of other people, when we find ourselves in those sins, in that defilement, it destroys those bridges. It starts to tear at the fabric of how we can actually be connected with other people. And then the third thing is, those sins rot at the very fabric of our souls. Jesus knows that if we're left to the, the playing out of our own sin, that it destroys us from within. And so, yeah, he goes through this heavy list and he kind of walks us through all of these things that feel heavy and burdensome. And suddenly we start beating ourselves up a little bit about how we feel about these. And we start to feel tired, right? Like maybe you're sitting there right now on your couch and you're like, Joe, man, this passage hurts a little bit. I do see myself in that list and I'm not sure I want to. Maybe we've been like the Pharisees and we start giving up. We start to see ourselves in a shameful way and we don't want to be a part of it anymore. But what if in this moment, what if in this very moment, that was Jesus's point? What if... What if he's actually trying to help us, to help us understand the depth of our brokenness, of how we are in desperate need, about how, what, what if this is one of the most loving things he could do is to get our attention off of simply the hands, but start to look at the heart? What if he's trying to make sure that our soul isn't rotting? What if he's trying to make sure that our relationships we don't have to burn all those bridges. And what if, what if he's trying to make sure that we can be reconnected with God? You see, what he's doing for the disciples is he's setting the stage. He's like laying out the precursor of what we need to discover in Jesus, in Christ. As the disciples are watching this play out, they've seen all of these historical moments of how Jesus has healed and done these miracles and how he interacts with people like the Pharisees. And now he's pointing out the issue that we have as humanity is far greater than simply what we do or don't do on the outside. It's internal. He's showing us our deep need for a savior. 
So Jesus takes us to a passage. He takes the disciples to a passage that would have been very familiar to the, to the Hebrew culture. He takes them to one where he sees King David. And King David, historically, in the context of this psalm that we're about to look at, he had just blown it. He absolutely took advantage of people. He absolutely allowed himself to just dive full into his sin. He allowed the darkness and the depths of his heart to be exposed to bear, and he actually ruined people's lives and even killed someone to cover it all up. And David starts to see himself in the list. He starts to see that his heart is defiled, and he pens these words. David says, have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David sees the defilement in his heart. But he doesn't stop there. He says, cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in a sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. God, his character showed up for David. As David saw the depths of his heart, the defilement of who he was, the ways in which that was playing out in dark, terrible ways, when he finally saw himself at that low moment, He knew to look to God. He knew that the reason that he would start to see himself that way was to remember to come back, to seek forgiveness, to say to God, I need you. Will you cleanse me? Will you wash me? Will you restore me? Will you make me whole again? David was remembering that it wasn't about the hands. It wasn't about, please take this sin away from me and in the sense of just don't make the consequences a bad thing. David knew to say, it's my heart. This passage was written by someone who saw themselves in Jesus' list. He saw himself needing a savior. He knew his heart was defiled. And he said, God, please clean it. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Renew me and rescue me. Now, 
as you look ahead today, as you look inside of your heart, I would ask this question. It's the question I've been asking this week. What's defiling me? Where do I see myself in that list? God, help me be honest. Deceit is in that list. And one of the, one of the first temptations I had in doing this exercise was making myself not look as bad as I really am. I instantly wanted to excuse it away. I instantly wanted to say, that's not that big of a deal. I instantly want to say, that's eh, not really what I meant to do. And, and God and his faithfulness said, slow down, Joseph. Slow down. Let me show you the defilement of your heart. This is so good because we're not going to just sit in the bottom of that pit. We're going to start to remember that the whole reason Jesus is showing us this is so that he can bring us back out of it. It's not about getting stuck in the shame, but it's also not getting stuck being short-sighted. Let's not get stuck on our hands like the Pharisees did. Let's not get stuck on the hands like the disciples initially understood. Let's get to the heart of the issue. Let's take an inventory of what's going on in here. And let's start asking God, God, what does my heart look like? And what do you want it to look like? Because when we're finally willing to say, Jesus, my heart is a mess. My heart is dark. My heart is defiled. Now we're ready to work. Now we're at a place where Jesus can begin the restoration. Now we're at a place where our honesty is laid bare. And Jesus is now ready to rebuild you, to take you from death to life. He's now ready to take you from the heart of a Pharisee into the heart of a full-on, completely devoted disciple that says, Jesus, I want what you want. Now we can experience the life that God wants us to have. When Jesus leads us to the depths of our heart, he's right there to deliver us. He's right there to rescue us. And these moments of honesty and our pursuit of him, there's no condemnation. There's restoration. I want to encourage you to allow yourself to see your heart in its true condition so that you can rest in the path that Christ is taking you toward redemption. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for being faithful. Lord, help us to see that when you point out our defilement, it's not so that you can just wag your finger at us. It's so that you can lovingly help us understand our need for a Savior. We're not just a little messed up. It's not just that our hands are dirty. It's that our hearts desperately need cleaned. And God, you're the only one who can do that. So Lord, as we process this right now, wherever we happen to be sitting at this moment, 
make this a mile marker for us, that we would be willing to see ourselves as you do and willing to trust in your love enough that we can begin to see Jesus work in our life in an incredible, powerful, saving way. Help us, Jesus, to be restored to the joy of your salvation. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.